All right, we are back. Let's talk a little bit about science and technology where it meets uh, military-industrial complex. Let me read this item from New Scientist, uh, September 23rd issue. Please put down your weapon. You have 20 seconds to comply. So said the armed robot in Paul Verhoeven's 1987 movie RoboCop. The suspect drops his weapon, but a fault in the robot's software means it opens fire anyway. Nearly two decades later, such fictional weapon-toting robots are looking startlingly close to reality. And, New Scientist has discovered, some may eventually help to decide who is friend and who is foe. Sometime in the coming months, chances are that we'll be seeing TV reports that an armed, remote-controlled robot has been used in anger for the first time. They'll appear when they'll appear. I can't talk about when that may be, said Bob Quinn, general manager at Foster Miller of Waltham, Massachusetts, whose machine gun equipped robot called SWORD was certified safe for use by U.S. forces in June. These first robots are going to be fully controlled by a soldier, but the Pentagon's Office of Naval Research shows that military robots are one day going to be asked to make some important decisions on their own. The ONR wants to engineer mobile robots to, quote, understand cooperative and uncooperative people and inform their operator if they seem a threat. It hopes to do this using artificial intelligence software fed with data from remote physiological stress monitoring systems and by using speech, face, and gesture recognition. From this, it would draw inferences about the threat that person poses. Said Lucy Sukman, an expert in human-computer interactions at Lancaster University, UK, This plan is just ridiculous. It involves the worst kind of simplistic profiling. It's a fantasy on the part of technology enthusiasts within the Pentagon. Bob Quinn, however, disagreed. Recognition technology is progressing fast. I think it'll separate the wheat from the chaff, he predicted. Personally, I'd hate to be wheat mistaken for chaff. If human troops have a hard time distinguishing friend from foe in Iraq, how do you think robots are going to do? Personally, I'm not sure that saying cloud to barada nikto is going to save you. I guess that reference will separate all of those who have seen the classic 1951 sci-fi movie The Day the Earth Stood Still from those who didn't. But, you know, one day I was in Bolivia many years back uh, in a small town in Bolivia. We were having dinner in a restaurant, and there was a TV in the corner on the bar that was showing RoboCop. I believe it was a TV show. May have been the movie. Anyway, it showed robots patrolling the streets of Los Angeles shooting machine guns at people. And I walked over to a guy watching this, and I said in Spanish, you know, the problem with this is people think this is how it is in Los Angeles. The guy looked at me and said, that's not how it is? And he was serious. Well, well, maybe before long, that will be how it is. We want to talk about an article in New Scientist about uh, the surprising possibilities of finding living organisms in shockingly cold temperatures, but we're going to defer that uh, to next week's show. Some bad news on the environmental front. It appears the ozone hole, which last year looked smaller than it had been in recent years, opened up to a record size this winter. It appears that the rosy forecast that it might close within 20 years uh, may have been just too optimistic. Said New Scientist magazine, maybe this is the Earth's way of telling President George W. Bush that global warming cannot be ignored. 
But uh, in just one year, the perennial sea ice cover in the Arctic has shrunk by nearly three-quarters of a million square kilometers, an area comparable to that of Bush's home state of Texas. If this trend continues, it could open a vast ice-free region in the East Arctic Ocean. Some good news on the upcoming uh, cold and flu season. Sabin Russell, writing in the Chronicle, notes that as millions of Americans prepare to line up for the annual flu shot, a leading expert on the feared strain of avian influenza told researchers in San Francisco that ordinary vaccine might save lives if the bird disease ever starts spreading among humans. Robert Webster of St. Jude Children's Hospital in Memphis told delegates at a conference that 50% of a small group of lab mice injected with a component of the annual flu vaccine survived exposure to a bird flu strain that ordinarily would have killed all of them. Well, 50-50 is a lot better than 100%, so uh, that is some encouraging news. God, we love New Scientist magazine. Uh, Article in the September 30th issue titled, What's Your Poison? was pretty darn interesting. The article reports on the research by uh, snake venom researcher Brian Grigg Fry, who made his first discovery the hard way. According to the article, during his PhD, he handled a snake whose venom was largely unknown. As far as anyone knew, Stevens banded snakes were not considered dangerous, Fry said. I clearly proved this wrong as my body hit the ground seconds after the bite. Several thousand snakes and more than 20 bites later, Fry, now deputy director at the Australian Venom Research Unit at the University of Melbourne, has gone one better. He now says the vast majority of snakes on the planet are venomous, even some commonly kept as pets. And Dr. Fry has single-handedly rewritten the story of snake venom evolution. Before he came along, the story went something like this. The first snakes evolved from lizards and were small, burrowing creatures less than a meter long. About 60 to 80 million years ago, they split into constrictor-type snakes and the advanced snakes, which are further divided into four families, vipers, cobras, stiletto snakes, and everything else. Leaving aside the colubrids, the everything else category, most of which were thought to have nothing more dangerous than slightly toxic saliva, venom was assumed to have evolved independently in each of the other three families. But study of the venom glands of advanced snakes and venomous lizards revealed that these glands did not evolve independently in the three snake families, or even in a common snake ancestor, but apparently much earlier in a lizard ancestor 200 million years ago. Venom evolved only once in the common ancestor of all snakes, plus some other reptiles which include the Komodo dragon, the green iguana, and the Gila monster. The upshot of all this is while the supposedly non-venomous colubrids were widely believed to have only mildly toxic saliva, Fry's work shows they in fact actually possess true venom. In fact, Dr. Fry found snakes in pet stores whose venom glands have enough poison in them to kill a human. The venom of the rat snake, for example, a common choice of pet, includes a neurotoxin which is as potent as the cobra equivalent. Fortunately for would-be pet owners, the rat snake has no front fangs, leaving these snakes with a rather crude venom delivery system. Pretty interesting stuff. It appears that the, uh, the constrictor snakes lost the ability to, to make poison because they crushed their prey. They didn't need the poison, but that the other snakes, all of them, all of them apparently retain 
some ability to inject poison. Fortunately, these uh, things like the rat snake uh, prefer uh, smaller prey than human beings. But a sidelight in this article, which I thought was really curious, which I did not know, was that captopril, an extremely common uh, antihypertensive, was developed from the venom of a lancehead viper. It's one of the most widely used medications for high blood pressure. And I got to tell you, when the drug detail guys came around to talk about captopril, they left out the part about the lancehead viper. But uh, snake venom is a, is a potent mix. It contains, you know, a couple dozen uh, different elements in, in many cases, and the research into it's going to produce a lot more medicines. So uh, uh, stay tuned. We've only got about two minutes left, so let's do our, our final item here. Uh, we may get a break, emphasis on the word may, but we may get a break in the next uh, few decades as regards global warming from a, an unlikely source. Scientists who have studied um, sunspots believe that uh, we've been undergoing a period of high solar activity for the past 50 to 100 years, and that uh, we, they're expecting a bit of a crash for the next few decades. And when you get a crash in the number of sunspots, the sun cools off just a little bit. Leif Svalgard from Stanford has been studying uh, polar magnetic activity uh, on the sun and expects a crash. The sun's polar field is now at its weakest since measurements began in the early 50s, and uh, the latest figures indicate that the sun's activity will be weaker during the next decade than it has been for more than 100 years, and just in time, too. Sunspots are so routine on the solar surface. Any, any amateur astronomer has probably projected the sun and, and seen them. They're very, very common, especially during the peak of the 11-year cycle. But for a period between 1645 and 1715, the appearance of even a single sunspot was major astronomical news, which sparked uh, communications from one observatory to another all across Europe. And uh, things got colder at that time. The French army used frozen rivers to invade the Netherlands. New Yorkers during that time period could walk from Manhattan to Staten Island across the frozen harbor. Sea ice surrounded Iceland for miles, and the island's population dropped by half. So uh, if the sun's going to cool off, this would be a really good time for it to do it. That's it for this week's show. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. We'll see you next Thursday at 5. Here comes the-